Uh, we were joking today at Susie's baptism. We were talking about how, you know, <clears throat> uh, I guess it was two weeks ago, maybe. Uh, last week was Easter. So two weeks ago, we were talking about how there was this, you know, we've, we had this focus on the, uh, on the, um, the inheritance. We talked about the land survey and, and we drew theological implications of the inheritance. And this is God. This is, this is this really cool picture of God giving this inheritance that he had promised, but there was work to be done to obtain it. And just a lot. And so you get, you get to this text tonight and we're still just dealing with the inheritance. And, uh, as awesome as it is, it's, it's a lengthy passage of scripture with just some really neat chunks of theological, uh, implications in the middle of it. And so we're going to cover, we're not going to read, there's six chapters. We're not going to read them all. We're just going to move through them. If you're visiting with us, we are, uh, preaching and teaching through the book of Joshua right now. That's what we're doing in, in, uh, our Sunday worship and then in our, our midweek, um, community groups, discipleship groups. So we're working through the book of Joshua and we'll be finishing that up in uh, three more Sundays after this week and then beginning our study of the book of Ephesians. So uh, we're going to cover a lot, of, a lot of scripture tonight. So let's, let's dive in. Let's roll. Somebody uh, in the nursery said, hey, I heard tonight's going to be a short sermon. And I was like, well, we're covering the biggest passage of, passage of scripture ever. Um, but I think, it, I think it'll, be, uh, it'll go pretty quickly. There's a lot of names. One of the reasons, I'm not going to lie to you, one of the reasons I'm not going to read everything is because I did a practice run through this thing. I could not pronounce about 60% of the names. I couldn't even pronounce them. There's so many names, places, people. I was like, forget it. So I would encourage you uh, between now and discipleship groups on Tuesday, Wednesday, um, I would encourage you to read all of it if you hadn't already. You should have read it in preparation for tonight, at least a portion of it. But I encourage you to read it all because it, it's inspired. It's, it's breathed out by God. So it's important that we do uh, not skip portions of Scripture, but for the sake of time and exposition tonight, we're going we're gonna to just cover larger portion and, and look at highlights. So we begin in, in Joshua 15. And what happens is uh, chapter 15 lays out the allotment that will go to the, the tribe of Judah. So to this point... Two and a half tribes have already received their land. So uh, to bring everyone up to speed, this is, the, this is the point in the story where God has brought about this great conquest, a five-year battle in Canaan. For five years, they've been fighting to obtain this inheritance, the inheritance being land and then all of the natural resources. So it's not just the land and property. It's the natural resources. So the agriculture, the, 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 the livestock, all of that, they get that. And then also they get the architecture of the land, which is the established cities, which one of the reasons it's really neat to read through all these chapters is to see how many cities there were. It is amazing how many, if you can imagine taking, they say this, that uh, the, Palestine, the Holy Land is about the size of the state of Maryland. Just pull up. So I, I, I pull up, I look in the back of my Bible at, at the, the detailed maps of the tribal allotments, which your Bible should probably have. And there's just tons of little dots, all these cities, little dots all over. Then I looked at uh, uh, Google, uh, just Google Maps of the state of Maryland, and it's crazy how many little towns there are everywhere, just just everywhere. And if you can imagine, they've inherited agriculture, livestock, but then also the, the, the architecture. So they've received this. Now there's a need to break it up and divide it. And if you've ever gone through the, uh, this is important because if it, this is important for community and unity. Because the, the allotments of the land, if you've ever gone through this where uh, your mom, your dad died, you, I had to be the executor, I think is the word, of 
of the estate when my father died, which the estate consisted of one Harley-Davidson motorcycle, one really old high-mileage Dodge pickup truck, and the camper trailer that my dad lived in that was worth nothing. So it wasn't a big deal. It was easy. But I can only imagine if you inherited a large estate uh, and there were multiple siblings, it would be important that this is done right so that, so that there's not infighting. So this is critical for the unity and the community <laughs> of the people of Israel. And so we got, we, so, so Joshua is going to give instruction on how the land is to be divided. So he's, a couple of the tribes have already gotten their land and they've received inheritance. We saw a couple weeks ago where Caleb received his inheritance. Uh, chapter 15 uh, details the inheritance given to Judah. They kind of get their whole chapter dedicated to them because they're, Judah will throughout the course of Israel's history be the upfront tribe. David as king comes from Judah. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. Judah was not the firstborn, but even in the, in the, in the period of the patriarchs, Judah was kind of the, the prominent more, uh, the stronger personality of the sons of Jacob. So that tribe is always going to kind of be front and center. And so we, we, we see the allotment that goes to Judah in chapter 15, but right in the middle of that in verse 14, we, we see another reference to Caleb. It says, Caleb drove out from there, the three sons of Anak, Shishai, uh, Ahimon and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, whoever strikes Kiriath, Kiriath Sefer and captures it to him, I will give uh, man, I, this is his daughter's wife. I tried to say it a, a bunch today. Probably practiced it, practiced it. Um, you guys see that word? Ak, aksa, I guess is how you say that. And, and I even looked it up in lexicon. Uh, <clears throat> there's little little things over the letters and it's confusing. Um, she wasn't from Alabama. We know that. Um, uh, I will give uh, as my, my daughter, his wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured and he gave him Aksa, his daughter as wife, when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field and she got off her donkey and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Okay. So there's this right in the middle of the inheritance that goes to Judah. There's this really neat snapshot of this family. We kind of zoom in on this family. You'll see this happen a lot. Uh, Paul does this when he's given his own inheritance to the Jews. He says, I was a Jew, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe that King Saul came out of. And this is where I was educated. And he kind of, he kind of zooms in on certain aspects of his identity. And so this is neat where you've got this tribal allotment right in the middle of it. We zoom in on this one family, Caleb's family. And what we get is a, an extremely valuable chunk, not a nugget. I don't like the word nugget. Because I don't eat nuggets unless they're in large volume, right? If I'm going to eat chicken nuggets, there's going to be a couple dozen of them. So it's a chunk. We, we zoom in on this big hunk of kind of practical biblical flesh and meat. And it's this. It's, it's a really neat picture of how Caleb's faithfulness, we see the impact that it had on his family because his daughter is bold. You guys do understand. It's a bold move. She steps up. She says, listen, Dad, I don't just want this. I want this whole area, and I want this and this and this and this, and I want it to be part of my inheritance. And this young man, Othniel, goes up and conquers. So you've got Caleb demanding strength from the men that will, will marry his daughters. It's a really cool practical picture here. And the man that, that ends up marrying his daughter 
who has conquered this region, Othniel will become the first judge of Israel. So in the next book of your Old Testament is the book of Judges. So sometime later, the people of Israel fall into about an eight-year rebellion against God. And it is this man, Othniel, that will snap them out of that. And lead them out of that. So it's just kind of a zoom in and a highlight on this one family. As if to say, hey, there there will always be a need for men and women to lead from within the church. And and, And there are responsibilities that we all have to the church. But also to our families to establish a legacy. You've got an amazing legacy that Caleb establishes here. We go back two weeks ago and remember when we talked in in chapter 14 about what Caleb did, what he demanded, what he asked for. But he didn't ask for it in the sense of, you know, there's one of the prominent or prevalent teachings today is the prosperity gospel, which basically says uh, the prosperity gospel is the idea that... um, if, you, if, if you're a Christian, then God wants to bless you financially. It's very important to him that you have financial stability and, and financial gain. And while we do know that God give us a, gives us certain promises in Scripture, that he's going to give us food and clothing, he's going to take care of us, he feeds the birds, and he takes care of the animals, and he clothes the flowers of the field, so he's going to take care of his sons and daughters. But Scripture does not promise us that we're going to be rich. It just doesn't. It's just not there. It's just not there. Scripture gives us guidelines of stewardship practical principles like don't be an idiot and waste your money and get in debt over your head and don't you know don't do this and this and this and this and here's the way you should pay things back and you should be responsible and your testimony is connected to your finances and so uh, and so on and so forth but there's nothing in scripture that says just hold your hand out and say god give me give me a lot of bling and god will do that but that's a prevalent teaching today and it's and it's amazing in places like africa and asia how prominent it is where poverty dominates the landscape and people are, are trying to grab hold of a Christianity that says, God's going to give me something for nothing. Here's what God gives you for nothing. Grace, salvation. That's it. The rest of it, you're going to work your rear end off. Because you're going to fight sin. You're going to pursue holiness. You're going to climb mountains. You're going to crawl through valleys. You're going to deal with death and heartache and conflict. And the rest of your Christian life will be, listen, you will not go a week, a month, a day, an hour without some sort of conflict being real in your life. So what we see in the life of a man like Caleb is that no matter how great the conflict within the inheritance that God gives us, We can hold to New Testament promises like, and all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Christ who loves us. God gives us strength to live out in the inheritance that he's given us our responsibility. So it's a really cool picture of that. And then also it shows us sort of a, a, a standard that the, rest of, that the rest of Judah would be judged by maybe. Like, like here's an example. Because what the church needs and what society needs is examples. Examples. There, there's, there's nothing wrong with doing, uh, w- with doing life in such a way that you set an example for people around you. In fact, we need that. We need men to be examples of what godly fathers should be. We need women to be examples of what godly mothers and wives should be. We need young people who will go into the school system and be missionaries on task, on point, for the gospel to reach their friends. We need to lead by example as sons and daughters of God. So part of our inheritance is the responsibility that we get to take part in the work of the gospel. So Caleb is, Caleb is a really neat picture of that. Get at the end of chapter 15, it says... 
But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. It closes with this kind of foreshadowing statement. Um, and it's interesting because the, if, if you remember, um, this area uh, where the Jebusites dwelt, back in chapter 10 at the Battle of Gibeon, they, they conquered the Jebusites. But what you see is this, this picture of, I think what people do is they read, let me read that verse again. Chapter 15, verse 63, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. And we read that and we go, okay, there's a foreshadowing here saying, ah, they didn't drive them out. So that's going to come back to bite them. But in fact, what we need to do is probably look backwards. And the practical application for us would be, they've already beat these people. They did, they beat them at Gibeon. And it's a good indicator that just because you win a victory today does not mean you won't have to fight that same battle next week or the week after next month. Don't, don't you dare think that you can turn your back on the enemy. As Christians, God gives us conquest and victory in our life, but we may have to come back and fight that same enemy over and over and over for some of us in some situations. And so you've got this, there, there's certainly a foreshadowing that, okay, they didn't drive them out. So they're probably going to have to fight these guys again, deal with these guys later. Maybe if you're, if you're more theologically minded, you think, okay, probably we're going to see sons and daughters intermarrying. And so we're going to have some spiritual conflict here, but don't miss the, the practical application of, I mean, they already beat these people once and here they are again. So as Christians, we have to be vigilant even against those areas in our lives where we've already seen victory. Make sense? That's practical. That's just good practical Christianity. Okay, chapter 16 and 17, a couple of things I want to point out. And what happens in these two chapters is the allotment of land goes to the Joseph tribes. You remember Joseph, the son of Jacob, who was the king, uh, the king's right-hand man in Egypt. Joseph had two sons, and those two sons both become fathers of tribes. And this is the allotment that goes to those two sons. And I want to I just, again, zoom in on two things in, in these two chapters. The first one is in chapter 16, verse 10. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. And so kind of like what they do with the Gibeonites, they force them into, uh, they, they, here's what they do. They justify and rectify in their minds. Oh, we can, we, we'll keep these people here and make them be our slaves. And here's what ends up happening. They end up giving their sons and daughters in marriage to these pagan people. And these people kind of infiltrate and penetrate uh, Hebrew culture. And that ends up being a real problem. That ends up being a real problem. And, and again, we see this practical application of our, the holiness in our lives matters at every turn. Like, like I don't get to, you and I don't get to take a break and not be vigilant in a certain area and then justify our actions and say, well, uh, I know that I should maybe be more obedient to the Lord here, but by not being obedient, it's going to help me be more practical. You know, you, we do this, we justify things. We, we go in circles in our minds and we talk ourselves out of obedience sometimes. And that's exactly what they do. And we see this come back to, to get them later for us. Here's what Martin Luther said, said this. Let me read this, this quote by Luther. Uh, while we read the Bible forward, we can only understand it backward. While we read the Bible forward, we can only understand it backward. It's important that we look back at the mistake these, these people made and we learn from it. Because what happened is by not living in complete and total obedience and subduing the enemy that God had promised victory over, that comes back to bite them later. We need to learn from that, that in our lives, areas of compromise will eventually come back to get us. 
just because there's not consequence to action immediately doesn't mean there won't be consequence to our actions. A delay in consequence doesn't mean an absence of consequences. And what happens here is they, they are not completely obedient and they don't drive these, this people group out. And there's no immediately repercussions to that. But later there are. And so in taking Luther's words, we're able to read the Bible forward from front to back. But now we're able to look backwards and say, okay, we need to learn from that. We can't allow areas of compromise. In our family, what would this look like? In, in family, this would look like making sure we understand what our kids are watching what websites they're visiting, making sure that for, for those of you that are young, single adults, that you have accountability in relationships and how you're spending your free time and, 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 being, uh, and being faithful to the church body to maintain accountability in your life. Young people being accountable to one another. This is where we need to make sure that we have safeguards put in place to help us live holy lives because we can't do it on our own. We can't do it on our own. The second thing that I want to point out uh, in, in, in these two chapters is down in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 17 and we'll look at this section and I want to contrast this to what Caleb's family did remember Caleb uh, back in chapter 14 asks Joshua to give him the most difficult territory but it's also the prized territory he says I want he, he I want to go to this area over here I want to take and we'll don't worry we don't need your help me and my family me and my sons I mean that, that was a family right there now that was like me and my boys and, and, and my brothers and we'll, my brothers and cousins and we'll go take care of it and we don't need your help and we'll go kill the giants that everybody else is scared of. He was the kind of guy that said, give us the hardest battle because it will bring the greatest and sweetest reward. I would say the cup of wine squeezed from the grapes in Hebron that Caleb's family put their lips on was probably the sweetest taste of wine in all the land. In all the land. Because it was most hard fought. The most hard fought battles often bring the greatest exhaustion in the spiritual life, but bring the sweetest taste of reward when it's over. When it's over. And there's practical ways that we all experience that when we're faithful. So contrast now to what Caleb did to what these guys do. Verse 14, Joshua 17. Uh, these are the, the Joseph tribes. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance? Although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me. Joshua said to them, if you're a numerous people, which they're just basically they're whining and complaining. There's no, there's no substance to their complaint. There's no substance to their complaint. I can tell you that as a, as a leader in ministry, there are times where it's important to be sensitive to the needs of people. There's other times where the most loving thing you can do is say, I'm sorry, you're whining. I don't have time for that. As a dad or a mom, there's times where you probably need to say to your kid, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm, I don't have time to listen to you whine right now. That's not helpful for you or me or anybody. And that's what we've got going on here, just kind of some whiny baby stuff. Uh, verse 15, Joshua said to them, okay, if you're a numerous people, and I love the way Joshua addresses it. If you're a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. Okay, so... You see what he, what's happening? They say, Joshua, Josh, listen. You have given us this small piece of land, and it's not right. Because we're a, we're a big tribe of people. We're a big tribe of people. This is, like, this is like the mother of one telling the mother of four or five, you just don't know how hard my life is right now. I've got a baby. It's so hard. I've got this kid, right? They're saying to Joshua, Josh, man, listen. We are, we are numerous. Joshua's managing all 12 tribes. 
and the millions that are there, and they're going, we're a lot of people, man, and they're not even one of the biggest tribes. Joshua says, okay, oh, you know what you are? You guys, you're big, you're big guys. Okay, tell you what, dude, there's two people groups, parasites. Go over there, kill those people, take their land. It's all yours. You're welcome. All right, catch you later. All right, now they don't like this. Joshua says, you want it? There's these two people groups. Go take their land. You were supposed to do it anyway. So the, again, and we're seeing this balance in the inheritance of God is giving the inheritance, but they have to go take the inheritance. Again, strong, strong spiritual parallel and application for us. The hill country is not enough for us, they had said. Okay, the people of Joseph said, verse 16, the hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron. Both those in Beth Shane and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, you're a numerous people and have great power. Now look, this is, this is Bible sarcasm, not sarcasm. I mean, he's being sincere. They say, we're a big people. Give us more land. He says, okay, take this land over here, fight for it. And they go, okay, but there's a lot of people there and they have chariots and over here too. And he's like, yeah, but y'all are numerous. Remember, you're a big people. So it shouldn't be a problem for you. Easy enough. Yeah, go, go over there and just take it. You shall not have one allotment only. The hill country, country shall be... Joshua's actually being real generous with him. He's saying, just go take it. You can have this massive portion of land. You shall clear it and possess to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron. And though they are strong. You know what he's saying? You want it? Go take it. I'm done holding your hand. Go take it. Some of the things, sometimes one of the most loving things a father can do is quit helping his kid in a given situation. You ever see, you, maybe part of your testimony or maybe something, you've seen this in your family when you were growing up or, 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 or you've seen a situation where a family, there's tension because there's a child that the parents refuse to just kind of give that shove that they need to give them. Or just let them fall down. Sometimes good parenting is letting that kid fall down and cry through the scuffed knees. Same thing. And just because that kid's 25 or 30 or 35, maybe you need to let them fall down financially. Maybe you need to let them fall down uh, in other ways. That's just good. And, and say, why don't you fight for life a little bit? Okay? And so what, what Joshua's doing is he's saying, you want it? Go fight for it. So it's a, it basically, it describes this, there's this contrast, this complaining lack of faith and lack of willingness to do the hard work of receiving their inheritance. They ask for more land. Joshua fires back with a sharp but sincere answer. And it's a really, really practical picture of how God expects us to live the Christian life. It's not a prosperity gospel. It's not a ask for whatever you want, demand it, and God will give it to you. It's fight for it, fight for it, fight for it. We get into uh, chapter 18. And we see in the, in the first two verses, there's now seven remaining tribes who need to be given an allotment of land. Verses 3 and 4, Joshua pushes them to go and take the land that God is giving to them. Now listen to this, what he says in verse 3. Joshua said to the people of Israel, there's seven tribes left. So we've got Judah and the Joseph tribes are now taken care of. Seven tribes left, but there's no borders that have been, that have been divided yet. Verse 3, Joshua said to the people of Israel, we're in chapter 18, verse 3. Um, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land? So he says, go take the land. Now look at the very next sentence. Which, which the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers has given you. Go take what God has given. That, listen, this is, when, when we keep getting told something, it's because God wants us to listen and get it. 
Have we seen this as, as a motif and a theme all the way through the book of Joshua? God is giving it, now go take it. It's, it's God is giving this inheritance, but they have this responsibility to go in and take it. And Joshua's saying, you got, listen, I've gotten you this far. You got to go take it. So Joshua's gracious. And he says, here's what you do. He instructs him in verse four to put together a team, like a land survey team, provide three men from each tribe. I'll send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They'll write a description of it and view it, their inheritance and, and, and then come to me. So he says, all right, put together this team of surveyors. They'll go out, they'll divide the land um, and, and kind of come back with it mapped out. Um, verses eight through 10, they work and complete the survey. This is awesome. Listen, to, okay, verses eight through 10, Joshua 18, verses eight through 10. I, this blew my mind in study this week. So he goes through all of this. Go fight for it. Go do the survey. You guys got to work for it. Go bring me back maps. I need to know borders and lines. And where's this mountain range coming into this valley? And where's this river running? I heard there's lakes over there. Go scout it out. All right, you guys got the, okay, you've been on this survey that probably took months. You got it? Okay, where's some dice? We're going to roll the dice for it. Huh? Yeah, we're going to cast lots. Because the writer of Proverbs, you remember, says the lot is cast. And the Lord determines how it lands. He makes them this time do all this work of surveying the land. And then says, I'm going to give it to you on my terms. And he divides it up. And so what he does is over the next chapter and a half through chapter 19, verse 48, starting in chapter 18, verse 11 through 19, 48, the seven tribes are allotted land according to the lots they have cast. Is that not hilarious? Fight, conquer, build walls, do a land survey, bring me the results, and we'll draw straws. And you're like, really? Yeah, and this is the way God works. Because remember, God doesn't need us for anything. But he sharpens us and sanctifies us and makes us. I mean, he's not going to let us just be lazy, fat, sit on the couch, play video game, sons and daughters. He's going to say, get in the yard and cut the grass. And... And I'm going to give you some allowance, but not for nothing. So it ain't allowance. It's like I'm teaching you how to receive salary and income. Manage it. You want that, you want that new pair of shoes and they cost $60 and you got $20. Okay. Do, how good are you at math? You're 12. Do you know how to come up with the difference between 20 and 60? What you do is you take 60. What a good daddy does is he doesn't pull out two more $20 bills. He says, let me show you how this works. This is called arithmetic. 60 minus 20 equals 40. That's how much dollars you need. See you later. When, when you get 60 bucks, bring them to me, and we get on Amazon and use my credit card, and you can give me the $60, we'll buy you shoes. Now, I'm not saying, now, I, I'm, a good dad's going to provide shoes for his kid. I'm just using an illustration. That kid comes and says, well, I mean, you gave me these shoes but these aren't like the shoes, you know what I'm saying? My friends are wearing like, you know, I mean, I got like nano 3.0s in there now. And they're all the way up to 5.0 now. This is, I cannot go to school looking like this. Some of y'all looking at me crazy because you ain't got teenagers yet. Huh? Remember, you were a teenager. Remember that? I mean, my dad took one of the most humiliating things. I was a freshman in high school. I was playing varsity basketball my freshman year. Make the varsity team. We did team shoes. Unless you were a freshman. Go buy your own shoes. I 
It's like, are you serious? Yep. I was like, dang it. I was, one of the things I was most excited about was getting team shoes, team warm. I got the warm up. I had to go buy my own shoes. My dad bought me a pair. He brought them home. He did not even take me shopping. <laughs> bought them a half a size big because said, I'm pretty sure you're in a growth spurt. I want these to last all season. They were pony. Y'all remember that brand? Pony. He brought me some ponies. They were the ugliest shoes I've ever seen in my life. He said, all right, son, I got you some shoes. I said, daddy, them are pony. I cannot wear. I am playing on the varsity high school basketball team. I'm a freshman. I'm already in an uphill battle. I've got big knees and elbows and everything else is skinny. And I'm getting made fun of my, my jersey. They put the, the, the uniform I got, le- I got given at the end of the handout uniforms. I'm a freshman playing guard. They gave me number 51. The armpits would tuck into my shorts. And I'm wearing ponies. I said, Daddy, this ain't going to work. I tried to get a cool factor. I even bought a, a Carolina blue armband like Jordan wore and pulled that sucker up here. Because he, Jordan wore one armband on the left up high on the forearm. I thought, well, that... Y'all, that, that kind of accessory has got to be added to something that's already cool. <laughs> there's, a, there's a proverb, something about putting a gold ring in a pig's snout. <laughs> it's still a pig, you know. <laughs> I remember my dad saying to me, I just bought you a pair of shoes. How dare you? I already bought you a pair of school shoes. Shame on you. I remember he, boy, he raked me over the coals. He said, you want some different shoes? You go buy them. I said, okie doke. Now, here's the way I responded, and each kid's going to be different. Because I was ashamed, but not so ashamed that I was willing to now wear ponies. <laughs> I was like, uh, oh, yeah, sorry, Daddy. But I ain't wearing no ponies. I, ain't doing it. I got a job. I rustled up some work and bought me a pair of Nike Air Revolutions. I looked sharp on that opening Friday night when we played Smoky Mountain High School. I looked sharp. Them shoes cost me $70 in 1987. That was crazy. You know what? One of the best things you can do as a parent and one of the sweetest, most gracious things God does as a father for us is that I'm not going to give you every ounce of your holiness. I gave you every ounce of your righteousness, but you're going to have to work to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Don't buy the lie. That you're selling out the, a gospel of grace when you believe that Christianity is a life that demands good works on, from, it, from its followers. Because James even says, what kind of faith is not going to be supported by good works? we got work to do. we got work to do. And so you see this really good parenting paradigm that God gives to his people. And so in the casting of lots, what God's saying is ultimately, I, I went and bought those shoes. But when I came home, who was putting a roof over my head? Who was putting the food on the table? Who was making sure I got to school as a ninth grader because I didn't have my license? Right? God says, hey, just because you did the land survey, it wasn't for nothing. It was for your growth. It was for your investment into the inheritance. So I'm not just giving you something for nothing. It's a really beautiful picture of parenting for us. And we come to the end of, and so over, over the, that next chapter and a half, the rest of 18 and all of 19, you see God lay out the allotment for each tribe, and each tribe is given its inheritance. And we come to the end of chapter 19, in verse 49, when they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritance, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. And it's a beautiful picture 
the man that has led this thing has been most faithful from the beginning. Even when Caleb got his allotment, Joshua was still just working. And it comes to this point where he gets his, his, his allotment, his inheritance. And it's a really, just a really neat picture in chapter 18, verses 49 through 51. And so we come to the, the, the closing passage or section or, or, or uh, verses of the section for tonight. And it's chapter 20, which uh, is the chapter on the cities of refuge. Now, you will remember um, back in Exodus, Rob uh, preached a message where we looked at cities of refuge. And this actually um, has its root all the way back in the giving of the initial law, the Ten Commandments. And here's what the cities of refuge. Well, let's, let's, let's read in uh, chapter 20. Uh, then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. Now, what he's done is he's, Moses had given three cities of refuge to the uh, Transjordanian tribes. So the tribes that, remember, settled uh, on the east side of the Jordan, they already have three cities of refuge. And you look at a map. Again, if you look at a map in your Bible, you'll probably have a map that has uh, something, something to the effect of uh, Israel and Palestine at the time of um, the allotments or something like that, or, or Joshua in the, in the, um, time of Joshua. And so you'll see these, the way my Bible has it is those dots are colored or, and shaped differently that represent cities of refuge. In my maps, they're red dots instead of black dots. And so east of the Jordan, you've got three dots that represent the three cities of refuge east of the Jordan. Now what's going to happen is they're going to establish three new cities of refuge to the west of the Jordan. So you're going to have a total of six cities of refuge. And here's what he's saying the cities of refuge are for. If someone commits manslaughter, manslaughter, what would, back in um, Numbers, he gives an example, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, there's a reference to this, where the example he uses is two guys are out cutting wood and the axe flies out of the one guy's hand and dead centers the other guy in the head and kills him, okay? And maybe there's no witnesses. And so the brother of the dead man says, we're getting you. Because remember, they had also been taught an eye for an eye. Now, now let me, hopefully this will shed light on our understanding of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. Because that comes from the Bible. That was put in place to put restraint on justice, not to make way for vigilante law. Because what God was saying is the, uh, the, the penalty has to match the crime. So it's not, so, so an eye for an eye, what God's saying is don't, so, so what would often happen is a brother, uh, the brother would go and not only kill the guy that killed his brother, but he'd kill a bunch of his family members. And this is how feuds and wars would get started where one guy kills another guy. And so we're going to go kill him plus three more of them. And then we're going to go kill six plus 12 more. So God puts eye for an eye law in place to say, okay, there needs to be a judicial system that to this day in America, our current judicial system draws off of the old Testament system of justice. Okay. And any democratic or Republican um, system of government throughout time in the course of history has operated off of an Old Testament system of law that says there needs to be a trial, there needs to be witnesses, there needs to be a, a defense. A person is, is innocent until proven guilty. All of that has its roots in Old Testament law. And so what God's done is he said, okay, let's say that a man commits an, an act of killing another man, and we don't know if it was an accident or not, then we need a place for him to get to for safety. So we will, and we'll see next week, 
um, that God pr- provided certain cities for Levites, and He provided certain cities as cities of refuge. And these cities of refuge. So, so I'm out in the woods, and, and me and a buddy are, are cutting wood, and I accidentally drop a tree on his head, and he's dead. And now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell somebody, go to the city and tell him I just killed this guy. Tell him it was an accident, and I will be at a city of refuge. You can come find me there. And he and and so these cities were spaced. Through, throughout the land so that usually within about 20 or 30 miles you could get to a city of refuge. When they got to the city of refuge, it was just that. It was a place of sanctuary where that, that avenger couldn't follow him into that city. So he, he lays out what it looks like when they get to the city. Verse 4, He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. So he says, okay, so he gets to the city. He comes up to the elders at the gate and he says, I killed a man. It was, uh, it was an accident. And so I need safe uh, refuge and a trial, a trial. This is like, uh, if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed to you, right? This is, this is, you know, we live in a system that says we're going to make sure everyone has representation. Well, that's rooted in the old Testament law. So he's saying, okay, um, I, you know, kill this guy. I need, so they bring him in and he's safe there. And the Avenger cannot come in there and do anything. Um, and if the Avenger pursues him, verse five, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in the city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment. Um, okay. So what would happen then, and, and you can read about this back in, in the book of Numbers, I believe it's chapter 35. Yeah. Chapter 35 of Numbers gives a real detail, a little bit more detail to this, but he would go on trial and if he was found, now listen, this is crazy. This, this is a statement on how God views the sanctity of life. If he is found guilty in the city of refuge. So the city of refuge, they weren't just a place that said, come all criminals and you can live here. It was basically, it was a judicial haven. So they come and they, it's literally like turning yourself in to be arrested so that the police are going to protect you from vigilante law. And so they bring them into the city of refuge. They go before a, a you know, judge, jury, whatever. They're tried. If they are found not guilty, well, if they're found guilty, first of all, for murder, then they're executed. Executed. No questions asked. They're executed. Okay? If they're found not guilty, they then have to remain in that city of refuge until the high priest dies. The high priest dies. Interesting. Very interesting. He shall remain in the city until he stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he has fled. There's a really, really interesting system of doing things. And I think there's a couple things to recognize. Uh, first off, one thing is that justice that reflects the nature and the char- character of God is also going to reflect the mercy of God. Uh, a lot of times I think we look at justice and mercy as two different entities, pure justice and pure mercy are married. And it's often been said that at the cross, they kiss justice and mercy where God provides mercy without perverting justice. And so what you've got in these cities of refuge is this really neat, deep, powerful picture of redemption and salvation. God has such a high view of human life that he says to this man, okay, you're not going to be executed. Now imagine this man leaves his family. He's committed this accidental death of a friend. He goes to the city of refuge. He's found not guilty. 
Now he cannot leave the city of refuge. So it is a place of freedom, but it is also a place of bondage. And he cannot leave that place until the death of the high priest. If there is not a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Bible, more powerful than that, if there is, rather, I don't know what it is. Stay here until the high priest dies in atonement for your sins. That's what I believe the the foreshadowing is. There's a debate over this. Some people say, no, it's not that. It's just, it's just he's got to do time. Well, what if the high priest lives for six months versus what if the, what if the high priest lives for 20 years? Right? It's, it's a picture, I believe. What we're seeing here is a picture of refuge in Christ, the death of Christ being foreshadowed as that which will set free the prisoner and the sinner. What a picture, man. Like, like you, now, now Luther says, read it forward. Let's, man, look at it backwards. Look backwards down the corridors of Old Testament history and Jewish law and look at what you see. Because mercy and justice meet at the cross. The fact is that until the death of the high priest, he couldn't leave. Now listen to this. Listen to this in conclusion. Down in verse 7, we get the names of these cities. And this is, this is the last thought. I'm just going to go through this. Okay. So they set apart... Uh, Kadesh and Galilee. So if you look at your map, you can find these cities. Kadesh, you know what the word Kadesh means? Righteousness. <laughs> the city is named righteousness. Flee to righteousness. Run to Christ. I mean, so everything's foreshadowing. Everything's foreshadowing. Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. Shechem, the word for Shechem, shoulder. As if this picture of Christ bearing us up on his shoulders as a shepherd carries a sheep. Just a cool picture. A place of refuge. A place of security. A place of safety. Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, which means fellowship. In the city of refuge, we find fellowship rather than the conflict that the death that happened outside would have brought. In Christ, we have fellowship with the Father. Really neat pictures. Word pictures. Verse 8. Beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer, which means fortress or strong. Proverbs 18.10. I love when Laylee was a little teeny girl. She memorized this first. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. And she would act it out. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is what was safe. What was secure? Do you remember? You remember you were teeny. Do memorization with these little hand signals. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord, Yahweh, is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. So Bezer means fortress or strong or strong tower. Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad. Ramoth means heights. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, the psalmist would say. Like the, the Christ lifts us to these heights above our sin. And it's just a really, another cool picture. And then the last one is, is uh, I had a difficult time word studying this out. I'm going in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh, but, but I did, th- there seems to be decent support that the word meant exiles or exiled. And what are we called? What does Peter refer to us? We are exiles, sojourners, aliens. Just again, another really cool word picture. You've got in these cities of refuge, even the names foreshadowing the gospel. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die. 
by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. And in the cities of refuge, we have a picture of Jesus, our Savior, our refuge, our strength, our fortress, the shoulders upon whom we sit, the rock that is higher than I. And all the allotments and all that's given out, I mean, all, all the inheritance that's given. In the end, the greatest gift given to the nation of Israel is the cities of refuge because they point to Jesus. And they say, there is a God who is bigger than your sin and your accident. There's a God who's greater than your ability to execute justice as a people because your system of law would, would be perverted if you were left to do it by yourself. So here are these six cities. Run there and be safe. Run there and be secure. And let the system that Yahweh puts in place stabilize your society. Amazing picture. Amazing picture. I'll pray. But before I do, let me, let me say this to you. If you're here tonight and you're visiting with us. And, or you're one of our members. Or you're one of our regular attenders. And you don't have a relationship with Jesus. There is nothing, nothing, nothing that we would rather do than explain to you really what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus. We'd love to do that. And we'd love to do that during the closing time of worship. You come down, Rob's right down here in the front, and, and, uh, and I'll be sitting down here. We'd love to talk to you. Or, or afterwards, hang around. We'd love to talk to you. But, but, but I want you to think, if, if, if this is new to you, the Old Testament is new to you, listen, listen to this quote from a smart guy concerning the names. These names then can be uh, the names of the cities, that is. These names then can be used to describe what sinners experience when they flee to Jesus. First, he gives them his righteousness. They can never be accused again. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like a shepherd, he carries them on his shoulders. and They enter into fellowship with him. He is their fortress, and in him they are safe. They dwell in the heights, even though they are exiles, pilgrims, and strangers in this world. Unless you have fled by faith to Jesus Christ, you are not saved. Since our sins put Jesus on the cross, all of us are guilty of his death. He is the only Savior, and apart from him and faith in him, there is no salvation. Have you fled to him? Have you fled to him? That's the question tonight. And if not, we invite you to. So I'll pray, and we will have a time of reflection on God's word. Lord, I pray that tonight you would help us to see in your word this powerful picture of the gospel, both in the inheritance and the allotments, but also in the refuge, the places of refuge that you provided for your people. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a refuge to us. You are a, a very present help in a time of trouble. Lord, we know, many of us know that it takes the trials and the difficulties of life to, to make that a reality to us. Thank you that you're a God who will test us and push us and stretch us. And while your gift of salvation is completely free, free for the taking, you offer that to us. We have but to receive it. That's it. You offer it. We take it. We're saved on the merit and the work of Jesus. For by grace we're saved, not of our works. We don't do anything to earn that. And I thank you for that because we know we couldn't. Lord, I also thank you that in Christ, you call us to action. And as your sons and daughters, you have work for us to do. And I pray that we'd be faithful and obedient to do it. Love you. And I pray that tonight you would take your word and drill it deep into our hearts. Make it applicable for your glory. In Jesus' name.